Welcome to the TES FE Podcast with me, Sarah Sam. In this episode, I'll be speaking to Richard Atkins, President of the Association of Colleges and Principal of Exeter College. week I went to the Association of Colleges conference. It's an annual three-day set to where senior politicians, sector leaders and principals set out the stall for FE for the year ahead. As well as learning a brand new dance routine for S Club 7's Reach for the Stars at the conference disco, I also learned an awful lot about FE strategy, funding and new ideas to reinvigorate the sector. The AOC conference is the forum where politicians usually take the opportunity to reveal a jazzy new plan for us all. However, In the run-up to the election, most of them just told us what they would do if we choose them in May. Something that Richard Atkins talked about was the disparity in funding between what's given to students in schools and what would be given to that same person were they to study in FE, with a 22% cut in FE funding. For me, this falls into, you know, come on, can you just stop being bonkers territory? And Richard and I chat about this in the podcast. The AOC manifesto is the set of recommendations made to the next government and it falls into three categories. Supporting student choice, sustaining economic recovery through education and training and creating a fair and effective education system. I'd really recommend having a proper read of the manifesto and if you go to aoc.co.uk it's on the front page. Anyway, here's Richard Atkins and I on careers education, transport English and maths, and that 22%. So you've just given your speech as AOC president and launched the AOC manifesto. I'd like to pick up on some elements which are important to me as a teacher and some of the practical measures that you talked about to address specific issues. First of all, careers education. It still doesn't seem to have progressed since I had this conversation with Michelle last year. Yeah, absolutely. The, um, I mean, I suppose we've had one bit of progress in that Ofsted are now, you know, apparently looking at it when they're inspecting schools, but we've seen no real national push on careers education. And, you know, I find it disheartening that every August, September, like all my colleagues, I meet young people and their parents coming into college after their GCSE results, who are very, very unaware of uh, the programmes we offer, the careers they lead to, the jobs. I think we're just wasting huge opportunities here and by not um, providing careers education, probably from the age of 11 onwards. I was at the Skills Show last week at the NEC. It's fantastic. Lots of youngsters coming along to see vocational education and training in practice. We need a lot more of that. So I'm not suggesting we go back to an, you know, I mean, I, be honest, I used to be a careers teacher in a school, you know, a long time ago. More, longer than I'm prepared to say on your microphone, a long time ago. I'm not suggesting we go back to those days, but what I am saying is young people need to get an understanding, information about, see job opportunities, career paths, different types of qualification, because the number of young people who are not taking advantage of the potential opportunities is far too big. If Ofsted aren't moving as quick as we'd like on that, because I'm assuming that once it's in the Ofsted 
um, sort of criteria in, for schools, then they'll start doing it. You've talked about careers hubs. Now, this seems like a practical solution to address this problem. Yeah, I got three, th- two or three parts to it, really, Sarah. I'm, I'm, um, uh, I, b- I believe that the solution is different to the old one. I believe that for the moment, the local economic partnership of employers we've got is LEPS. Actually, it doesn't matter to me what it's called or who they are, but I think it should be employer-led to get the employer buy-in. Uh, and I think whether that's a city region like Manchester or whether it's a LEP, in that, you need a coalition of those employers that employ, I believe, with colleges and training providers so that they can have better access to school and actually so that they can take responsibility, I think, for local skills competitions. So that we have this fantastic national skills show in Birmingham every, every November. We need a better system of local and regional skill shows and skills competitions, and young people in schools need access to those. So I see that as an innovative idea for the next government. It's constructive. It's not costing huge amounts of money. But for me, it needs to be mandatory that schools and their young people participate in these programmes so that more young people get a lot more careers, education and information than they're currently getting. I really like this idea of the careers hubs in cities and in you know in regions in in similar sort I envisage it in a similar sort of way that you'd see the army those sort of army shops that they look like where people are giving you information and guidance that sort of thing yeah absolutely and and with a board behind them as I say that's employer-led but on every board you would have a college or college representation and independent training provider and as I say as well as having the, the any shop front they would organize events and skills competitions in the area which schools would be encouraged to participate in and I would see then Ofsted would have the basis of a checklist so instead of saying to Ofsted inspect careers I think you'd say how is your school interacting with your local or regional careers hub what evidence have you got that your young people are uh, inviting visiting speakers from business making visits to employers getting an understanding of the vocational qualifications that colleges and training providers offer and so on. The second thing I wanted to ask you about was another really practical solution, transport. Yeah, yeah it's a huge one, isn't it? Yeah, we all look a little bit enviously to London because because of London, you know, the mayor, both mayors really have been able haven't they, to, to adopt a London-wide policy on transport. And as a result, we get an awful lot of movement of students on the underground and buses from college to college, school to school. In other parts of the country, youngsters are quite uh, hindered by the lack of transport support. You t- sorry, you talked about, um, and I'm just looking for it here, the, the, the huge prices that yeah, some yeah, students yeah. are having to pay just to get to college. As you probably know, the local authority has a responsibility to do something, but many have to now do the absolute minimum. And yeah, there are there are counties around the country which are young people are paying six, seven hundred or more per year to have a bus pass to get to college. Colleges are spending money trying to subsidise that. That's money that should be used for teaching and learning. There's a sort of vicious spiral here. And I always think, you know, in, I have to think about my own part of the country simply as an example. There are, you know, we, we, a lot of young people live in, in rural areas as well as urban. If you take parts of the county I work in in Devon, if you want to pursue a vocational career, if you're age 16 and you want to be a chef, you've got to travel for 45 minutes on a train or a bus. It is going to cost quite a bit of money. At the moment, young young people are becoming unable to take that option because the transport funding isn't available what i'd like to see is a voluntary scheme i'd like to see a scheme where everybody over the retirement age who's got a bus pass 
and we can think there are even college principals in that position. I'm not quite there myself. Uh, it, they should be able to voluntarily give those back and it be given to a young person. So what I'd like to see is everybody, because I, I know plenty of people in the village I live in, uh, you know, middle-class people who say, oh, I've got a bus pass, it's sort of great fun. They don't need a bus pass, they don't even want one. I'd like to see those people able to take those back, hand them in and give that to a young person. That's a, that's a really interesting idea. Much better investment of public money. Absolutely. Um, the third thing I wanted to ask you about was English and maths. You've talked about a sensible employer... Yeah employer-related contextual qualification for 16 to 19 year olds does that mark the end of functional skills or are you thinking about sort of reimagining functional skills Uh, i i've got to be honest here i think my initial reaction was i don't think we want to tear up functional skills i mean we've had quite a journey haven't we through key skills and functional skills and all the rest to where we are i don't want you to get rid of it i teach functional skills and i've just spent the past however many years selling it to them i'm not in favor of tearing up tension what i am in favor of is stopping young people having to reset a largely academic qualification which they failed at school because i'm sure you've Sarah, you're teaching that or you've taught it in the past. Yeah, and that's tough stuff. Uh, I would like to see qualifications in English and maths for students who've got um, D's and E's at GCSE, which have some of the GCSE programme around it, but are contextualised, are more related to employment and adults. I was followed on the main platform, not the next speaker, the one after that, by, by somebody who I was talking to who is a both runs a business, is a mathematician and an engineer. He thought it was balmy that young people aged 17 and 18 had to go on and on resitting an academic qualification that's largely theoretical and abstract in order... Is, in, in, in order to uh, work towards a vocational qualification. You're Am talking I? about the GCSEs here? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Very much. And I'd like to see either a new GCSE that we can contextualise and, and so on. But as you know, in FE, the most powerful maths in English is when it's contextualised to the occupational area. So my, my greatest, some of my, I'm sure you're a great functional skills teacher, but some of my greatest in my college are construction staff or engineering staff who've retrained and, and contextualised as much as possible to that industry. I think to get, and I've got students in those areas with a D who are now being made to redo the GCSE they failed at school. That to me isn't doesn't make any logical sense. It feels like it's come from a really positive place. The idea for it, that the you know the idea's heart was in the right Absolutely. place, but it just hasn't translated practically. Yeah, and I think my speech said that. I, I, I you don't meet anybody in a college who says you shouldn't have to do English and maths. I mean, like everybody realises they're absolutely core skills. They're, to- they're not just about employability; they're about being able to survive, aren't they, in modern society? They're absolutely key. What we're saying is, it was the speed it was introduced at, and the lack of thought really, and and also that it came from an academic base. And my experience is that usually when things come from an academic base and are then applied to the word of vocational, they don't work. And I think, you know, my mind recalls the diploma, and I can think of many other examples of where academics have been involved in designing qualifications and progression routes for vocational students. Uh, I I think contextualisation is critically important if we're going to raise the skills in English and maths of students aged 16 to 19. I mean, that's one of the issues with functional skills that although, you know, we can contextualise it in teaching it when it comes to the exam, it's still, um, what was a recent one, lighthouses in Estrick talking about working at a lighthouse. Yeah, it is difficult. All I would say is I, I think 
totally getting rid of tests is a, a non-starter with any political party. I think there will have to be some form of testing. Uh, I agree with you, that needs to be contextualised as much as possible. There will need to be some testing, and, and it also for employers and so on. But as I say, uh, my our real concern at AOC is about the GCSE English and Maths, uh, and particularly the micromanagement of that by government to say that everybody who's got a D must do GCSE. That re- that um, lets uh, our professional teaching staff, gives them no uh, room to manoeuvre in terms of professional judgment, diagnostic testing. As you know, D is quite a broad band at GCSE. Yeah. Some of them are quite r- ready and want to do the GCSE and they, they're going on to a career where they know they'll need it. They're motivated. Um, uh, and that's not a problem. Others were a very were almost an E, and don't want to be dragged through the same qualification for two years. Finally, um, what we're we going to do about this twenty two percent? Could yeah, you just explain that to to the listeners? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the the it, it, it when the coalition agreement was signed at the beginning of this parliament, it was agreed that health and education would be within this ring fence where funding wouldn't be cut. I'm aware that it's cut at the edges, but the core funding wouldn't be cut. The boundary was drawn from 5 to 16, not to 18, even though at the same moment the government agreed that everybody should stay in learning till they're 18. So we've now had this anachronism, and over five years it's getting worse. So every time the Department for Education and Biz get a cut in financial, Department for Education gets a cut imposed on it, it looks and says, oh, we can't cut the 5 to 16 bit because we said we wouldn't, so we'll have to cut the 16 to 18. And I thought last year's cut to 18 plus was the most iniquitous. Um, funding cut of my career. I mean, I've been in FE, you know, over 30 years, well, you know, well over, a bit over, and it was the most iniquitous cut to to target that at the less able uh, people who were trying to climb the ladder, usually from often having wasted a year in a school sixth form before coming to college, to cut their funding by 17.5% beyond the 22% was just terrible. Um, but I think the 22% cut isn't justifiable. Uh, we we realise there's no money. We're not asking for loads more money. What we are saying is set up a, a, a commission, a review, bring in an Alison Wolf figure and look at, and I've talked to Alison about this, and she also agrees that the funding for 16 to 18 is not insufficient now. And I'm saying start with preschool and work your way right up. I'm told that we spend more on preschool than any other country in the OECD as a proportion. Now, if that is true... We need to ask questions about how effective that is. Is that the right thing to do? And if we're doing that at the expense of cuts to 16 to 18, that isn't right. So somebody needs to stand back and look at the whole thing. And I think what we're asking for is we cannot continue with the present policy, which is to impose all the cuts on this, this age group. And, uh, you know, if you're looking at independent schools, it costs more to go to the sixth for the 16 to 18 part, doesn't it? That it costs more in fees than it does for the 11 to 16. And it, it, it's been exacerbated by being asked to do more. So not only have we got this big funding differential and we've had funding cuts, we're being asked to, to do uh, more with the young people in terms of English and maths. Uh, we're being inspected on employability skills and enrichment for employability and so on. I mean, as I said at the end of my speech, you cannot keep asking for more and not sit back and say, how are we distributing this limited education budget? You can't ask for more and keep cutting the budget for the same age group. How confident are you that that will change in May? I'm 
reasonably i believe that between all of us that's everybody working in colleges and the aoc and other other partner organizations we have now got this on the political agenda i do not believe there will be significant funding cuts for 16 to 18 next year um, other than those that are already in the pipeline and i believe a new government is acutely aware that this has got to change now there's going to be some real challenges after the election. We've already worked out at AOC. You probably know there's a black hole in the DfE's budget. They haven't allowed for the fact that the, the bulge in the demography goes into secondary in the next parliament, which is more expensive. So there's more money to spend on the growing numbers. But we are simply saying, let's have a national review in the first six months of parliament. Let's sit back, look at these age groups from naught until you graduate and see how the money is distributed. Maybe our worst, best scenario is that we get no more cuts and people come down to our level. I don't know. But what it is, you cannot keep singling out this age group for the cuts. There'll be more from the AOC conference later on in the week when I'll be joined by Tony Pierce, president of the National Union of Students, as well as Beacon Award winner Tony Payne of Canterbury College. Thanks very much indeed to Richard Atkins and thanks to you for listening. <laughs>